Episode 64. Greetings and welcome in to the scariest episode this side of Halloween. Today, we're going to talk about fear, foods and drinks we fear. Oh yes, things like pickled lamb's tongue, fried calves' brains, and coot, a nasty seabird with dark red flesh. This episode is not for the faint of heart. There is hunting, burying, digging up again, breaking brains up into bite-sized chunks, and stale, expensive bread. (gasps) But if you hang on, sipping on a Singapore sling or two, you will be well rewarded by a horrifying reading of The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft, which freaks me out, so we're in this together, on this fear-filled episode of the P.G., But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. I mean, with all seriousness, they keep the lights on. But if you want me to describe what they mean to us, I would say... These fear-fighting folk are the warm, fuzzy blanket, the hot chocolate, the silly song, and the spoonful of sugar. Not to mention the sound machine, lavender, sage, and soft bedding to hide under that is the Patuxet General. Without whom... We would be sitting in the corner of the basement with a flashlight going out and steps coming across the room while we scream, Mom! The fuck? How did you do that? Okay, let's try this once again without the cat scaring the heck out of me. These fear-fighting folk are the warm, fuzzy blanket, the hot chocolate, the silly songs, and the spoonful of sugar, not to mention the sound machine, lavender, sage, and soft bedding to hide under that is the Patuxet General, without whom we would be sitting in the corner of the basement with a flashlight going out and the steps coming across the room while we scream, Mom! So thank you. Ready for a drink? I know I am. Drinks we fear. I asked around a bit and got a full range of answers, from 151 rum to blue UV to absinthe to the ever-feared zombie. Some folks fear sugary drinks, others high alcohol content. Look, some arrive at the table on fire or with heavy metals floating in them. Uh, Some have so much spice they'll burn your stomach. But whatever your particular adventure, enjoy. These dangerous drinks in moderation, with fabulous appetizers or snacks, and a great time will be had by all. Our choice this week goes with a movie pairing. Or maybe two. And that is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the movie, and the drink featured therein, the Singapore Sling. This recipe in the movie, based on the Hunter S. Thompson book, is served with a shot of mezcal and a beer, and goes as such. You will need ice, one and a half ounce gin, one half ounce orange juice, one half ounce lemon juice, one half ounce Cointreau, some soda water, a spoonful of cherry juice, and an orange peel. In your shaker, combine the ice, gin, juices, and Cointreau. Give it a really good shake until the outside of the shaker is frosty. Then pour through your strainer into a glass full of ice. And top with soda water, a spoonful of cherry juice, and serve with an orange peel. 
But that is not the original, oh no. The drink was invented in 1915. Ni Yum Tong Boon was a bartender at the Ruffles Hotel in Singapore. He worked for a very long time at the long bar in the hotel. And for his recipe, you will need 30 milliliters gin, 15 milliliters cherry brandy, 7.5 milliliters Benedictine Dom, 7.5 milliliters Cointreau, 150 milliliters pineapple juice, and a dash of Angostura bitters, not to mention 10 milliliters of grenadine, a shaker and ice, and a Nick and Nora glass. All the ingredients go into the shaker and are shaken very, very well until foamy, and then you strain into your glass and enjoy while you watch a Nick and Nora detective movie or even Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Throw your monkey shells on the floor like at the long bar and enjoy. lamb's tongues and other foods we fear our relationships with food are often complicated allergies dietary issues personal mores and religious restrictions can create primal fears to surface and control our responses what is it for you hot things insects rich things nuts hard things or organ foods perhaps brains today we will take a look at brains pickled lamb's tongues and coot So before we get to the mean old coot, let's cook these calves' brains. Today's recipe is from 1902 edition of Miss Seeley's Cookbook. For fried calves' brains, she says, remove the arteries and soak four calves' brains in cold water for two hours. Put in a saucepan with water, which strongly tastes of vinegar. A few peppercorns, a bunch of parsley with herbs, tied in it, and a sliced onion. Boil slowly for 40 minutes. Drain onto a cloth. Divide each lobe into two or more pieces. Sprinkle the pieces with breadcrumbs. Dip in beaten eggs. Roll in fresh white crumbs. And arrange in a frying basket. Immerse in plenty of very hot fat and fry a nice color. Garnish with fried parsley and past tartar sauce. Hmm. I never thought to have tartar sauce in my brains before. I'll try that next time. Thanks, Mrs. Seeley. Both these next recipes come from the Plymouth Colony Cookbook, the original edition being printed in 1957 by the Plymouth Antiquarian Society. For pickled lamb's tongues, you will need 12 fresh lamb's tongues, water to cover, 1 cup of water additional, 3 cups of vinegar, whoa, two whole cloves and two whole allspice, or one half teaspoon each powdered. By that they mean ground cloves and allspice. Boil the lamb's tongues in water to cover until tender. Cool in liquor and then skim and trim. Boil together the rest of the ingredients. Cool and pour over the tongues. Serve these split lengthwise. This is a delicious hot weather dish, five to six servings. Will Wright, Governor William Bradford's brother-in-law, died in 1633, leaving a ewe lamb to the church at Plymouth to have and to hold the same forever. I'm not sure that I'd want pickled tongue forever, but to each their own. 
But by far, the most frightening for me to cook is coot, and the section all about coot did not make it any better. They say the traditional rule for cooking coot, a duck with strong fish flavor, is this. Clean and truss your coot. Boil for four hours in a large kettle into which you have put a clean brick. Then, throw out the coot and serve the brick. Coot is shot in the fall from a dory offshore. Cold, stormy dawn is the best time. They suggest to remove the fishy flavor away, fill a coot with earth and bury it for 24 hours. Dig it up, wash it thoroughly, and roast it like a duck. Perhaps I might eat something buried like kimchi, but I can promise I won't eat anything filled with dirt and buried for 24 hours. That said, I saw a modern recipe for this bird, which maintains that the fishy flavor comes from the fat of the bird, and if fully removed, tastes fine. Hmm. These folks went down to the water early in the morning, caught way less than the limit, and brought them home to clean, when it was clear that they were not ducks. Their feet are not webbed, their bills are shaped differently, and the cleaning is much faster. There is very little meat on the breast, although they say it can be good, but the best part appears to be the leg. These folks meticulously remove any tiny bit of fat. Some recipes called for soaking the coot in milk overnight. Others just called for soaking them in water for a few hours. Others were boiled and then grilled. Each time the folks trying the birds said it tasted good, but that's not what their faces said. I saw one method that I thought would have sure success. But if they're that bad tasting, why should we eat them, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you. They are mean, nasty creatures that destroy other birds' nests and young eggs and hatchlings. They mostly attack ducks and can affect their population numbers in dangerous ways. Hence the phrase, mean old coot. That said, I think they're cute. Black feathers with a white bill and three-toed talon-like feet? Scary. But if you want to eat them, for whatever reason, this is the best recipe that I found. Thank you, the Kelly's Outdoor Channel, for the episode Coot vs. Duck Taste Test Surprising Results. For this recipe, you will need one 8-ounce package of cream cheese, one slice of bacon for each piece of coot, one half jar of drained pickled chopped jalapenos, Montreal steak seasoning, two coot breasts, two coot legs, well cleaned and rinsed. Take your coot breasts and cut a little pocket into each, and then make an incision along the bone of the leg, set aside. Combine the cream cheese and jalapenos, then stuff into the cut coot and wrap in bacon. Sprinkle the steak seasoning all over and then grill. They cook fast, so keep your eye on the bacon. Eat right away, don't waste your grill magic, and enjoy your mean old coot. Me? I'm having bacon, cream cheese, jalapeno hors d'oeuvres. Hold the seabird. Who's afraid of leftover pricey sourdough loaves? Check out this tip to retain fresh farmer's market bakery quality. For a large, round, unsliced loaf, cut in half with a serrated knife. Then set the flat side down and slice in half again. Take the quarter and cut into three equal slices. Then place them in a plastic freezer bag and put them in your freezer. Take out your slices as desired, and with a little light toasting, they are just as fancy as day of. If you cut them into cubes and season them with granulated garlic, pepper, salt, and a quick dash of olive oil, 
Bake in a 350-degree oven for seven minutes, and you have croutons, which when are cooled are perfect for Caesar salad. Or you could soak the stale slices in milk and then break them up when they are soft. Add them to meatloafs, meatballs, Thanksgiving casseroles, or butternut squash stuffing. But I stand by the adage I taught my own children. You can do almost anything with stale bread. You can't do a darn thing with moldy bread. So when in doubt, let's say yesterday's leftover baguette is too tough to eat. Open your bag, let it get stale, and then you'll make an incredible stuffing or whatever. But I think that for sure you will enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball and pinball and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now, the House on the Corner miniseries, The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. On July 16, 1923, I moved into Exum Priory after the last workman had finished his labors. The restoration had been a stupendous task, for little had remained of the deserted pile but a shell-like ruin. Yet because it had been the seat of my ancestors, I let no expense deter me. The place had not been inhabited since the reign of James I, when a tragedy of intensely hideous, though largely unexplained, nature had struck down the master, five of his children, and several servants, and driven forth under a cloud of suspicion and terror, the third son, my lineal progenitor, and the only survivor of the abhorred line. This sole heir denounced as a murderer, the estate had reverted to the crown, nor had the accused man made any attempt to exculpate himself or regain his property. Shaken by some horror greater than that of conscience or the law, and expressing only the frantic wish to exclude the ancient edifice from his sight and memory, Walter de la Poer, 11th Baron of Exham, fled to Virginia and there founded the family by which the next century had become known as de la Poer. Exham Priory had remained untenanted, 
though later allotted to the estates of the Norris family and much studied because of its peculiarly composite architecture. An architecture involving Gothic towers resting on a Saxon or Romanesque substructure, whose foundation in turn was of a still earlier order or blend of orders, Roman or even Druidic, or native Cimmeric, if legends speak truly. This foundation was a very singular thing, being merged on one side with the solid limestone of the precipice, from whose brink the priory overlooked a desolate valley three miles west of the village of Anchester. Architects and antiquarians loved to examine this strange relic of forgotten centuries, but the country folk hated it. They had hated it for hundreds of years before, when my ancestors lived there and they hated it now, with the moss and mold of abandonment on it. I had not been a day in Anchester before I knew I had come to an accursed house. And this week, workmen have blown up Exum Priory and are busy obliterating the traces of its foundations. The bare statistics of my ancestry I had always known, together with the fact that my first American forebear had come to the colonies under a strange cloud. The details, however, I had been kept wholly ignorant through the policy of reticence that maintained in all the telepores. Unlike our planter neighbors, we seldom boasted of crusading ancestors or other medieval and renaissance heroes. Nor was any kind of tradition handed down except what may have been recorded in the sealed envelope left before the Civil War by every squire to his eldest son for posthumous opening. The glories we cherished were those achieved since the migration. During the war, our fortunes were extinguished, and our whole existence changed by the burning of Carfax, our home on the banks of the James. My grandfather, advanced in years, had perished in that incendiary outrage, and with him the envelope that bound us all to the past. I can recall that fire today as I saw it then at the age of seven, with the federal soldiers shouting, the women screaming, and the men howling and praying. My father was in the army defending Richmond, and after many formalities, my mother and I were passing through the lines to join him. When the war ended, we all moved north, whence my mother had come, and I grew up to manhood, middle age, and ultimate wealth as a solid Yankee. Neither my father nor I ever knew what our hereditary envelope had contained, and as I merged into the grayness of Massachusetts business life, I lost all interest in the mysteries which had evidently lurked so back in the family tree. Had I suspected their nature, how gladly I would have been to have left Exum Priory to its moss, bats, and cobwebs. My father died in 1904, but without any message to leave me or to my child Alfred, a motherless boy of ten, it was this boy who reversed the order of family information. Apparently, the Delapores had a colorful and perhaps sinister history, for a friend of my son's, Captain Edward Norris, of the Royal Flying Corps, dealt in the family seat at Anchester and related some pleasant superstitions which few novelists could equal for wildness or incredibility. Norris himself, of course, did not take them seriously, but they amused my son and made good material for his letters to me. It was this legendary which definitely turned my attention to my transatlantic heritage and made me resolve to purchase and restore the family seat which Norris shewed to Alfred in a picturesque desertion and offered to get for him at a surprisingly reasonable figure since his own uncle was the present owner. I bought Exum Priory in 1918, but was almost immediately distracted from my plans of restoration by the return of my son as a maimed invalid. 
During the two years that he lived, I thought of nothing but his care, having even placed my own business under the direction of partners. In 1921, as I found myself bereaved and aimless, a retired manufacturer and no longer young, I resolved to divert my remaining years to my new possession. Visiting Anchester in December, I was entertained by Captain Norris, a plump, amiable young man who had thought much of my son and secured his assistance in gathering plans to guide in the coming restoration. Exam Priory itself I saw without emotion, a jumble of tottering medieval ruins covered with lichens and honeycombed with a brook's nest, perched perilously upon a precipice and denuded of floors or other interior features save the stone walls of the separate towers. As I gradually recovered the image of the edifice that had been when my ancestors left it over three centuries before, I began to hire workmen for the reconstruction. In every case, I was forced to go outside the immediate locality, for the Anchester villagers had an almost unbelievable fear and hatred of the place. This sentiment was so great that it was sometimes communicated to the outside laborers, causing numerous desertions, while its scope appeared to include both the priory and its ancient family. My son had told me that he was somewhat avoided during his visits because he was a de la poor, and I now found myself subtly ostracized for a like reason until I convinced the peasants how little I knew of my heritage. What the people could not forgive, perhaps, was that I had come to restore a symbol so abhorrent to them, so rationally or not, they vexed Exum Priory as nothing less than a haunt of fiends and werewolves. Piecing together the tales which Norris collected for me and supplementing them with the accounts of several servants who had studied the ruins, I deduced the Exum Priory stood on the site of a prehistoric temple, a druidical or anti-druidical thing which must have been a contemporary with Stonehenge, that indescribable rites had been celebrated here few doubted, and there were unpleasant tales of the transference of these rites into the Cybele worship which the Romans had introduced. Inscriptions still visible in the subcellar bore such unmistakable letters as D-I-V, O-P-S, M-A-G-N-A, M-A-T. Anchester had been the camp of the Third Augustan Legion. As many remains attest, it was said that the Temple of Sabeel was splendid and thronged with worshippers who performed nameless ceremonies at the bidding of the Phrygian priest. Tales added that the fall of the old religion did not end the orgies at the temple, but that the priests lived on in the new faith without real change. Likewise, it was said that the rites did not vanish with the Roman power and that certain among the Saxons added to what remained of the temple and gave it the essential outline it subsequently preserved, making it the center of a cult feared through half the Heptarchy. About 1000 AD, the place is mentioned in a chronicle as being a substantial stone priory housing a strange and powerful monastic order and surrounded by extensive gardens which needed no walls to exclude a frightened populace. It was never destroyed by the Danes, though after the Norman conquest, it must have declined tremendously. Since there was no impediment when Henry III granted the site to my ancestor, Gilbert de la Poor, first Baron Exum, in 1261. 
of my family before this date there is no evil report, but something strange must have happened then. In one chronicle, there is a reference to Dilapur as cursed of God in 1307. Whilst village legendary has nothing but evil and frantic fear to tell of this castle that went up on the foundations of the old temple and priory, the fireside tales were of a most grisly description, all the ghastlier because the frightened reticence and cloudy evasiveness. They represented my ancestors as a race of hereditary demons, beside whom Gilderetz and Marquis de Sade would seem nothing, and hinted whisperingly at the responsibility of the occasional disappearance of villagers through several generations. Stay tuned for more Rats in the Walls. And thank you once again for joining us today at the PG. I hope we worked on some fears, or at least found a way to theoretically wrap bacon around them. I hope you drank your version of a Singapore sling while enjoying disturbing recipes of the past and present. If you have any fear-filled tales or recipes, please reach out. Our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. I can't wait to read them, but until then, I'll meet you right back at the Patuxet General pop-up store and back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production. Pre-recorded in Patuxet. <laughs>